Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. So we're in Numbers 35 tonight and we're going to do 36. Oh. Uh, which means we're finishing the book of Numbers tonight. And I even asked if we should have an end of the book of Numbers party or something like that. Like, you know, we put numbers up everywhere and we quiz each other with math problems when we walk in the door. Steph didn't like any of these ideas. Um, but it is still the end of Numbers tonight. And it's kind of a, you feel like it's almost on these big first five books. Each of them are kind of a project in and of themselves. It's kind of a night of celebration when you finish one. Not because the book was that bad. But you just feel like you're making that progress through the Word of God, and it just feels really great. So um, the book of Numbers, as a reminder, has been the story of moving from Sinai to Jericho. And it's a 40-year journey of the Israelites. It's the journey that they talk about for all of the rest of human history. Uh, this is their wandering in the wilderness. Um, we've looked at it through the eyes of seeing our walk with Christ in, in that journey in the wilderness, that our lives can look like that too. And then at the end of Numbers, you get this official record in chapter 33, which is the record that would go to the king. And then in 33 through 35, you get these addendum pieces, almost like Moses forgot things and wanted to just throw them on. But I think by the end of tonight, you're going to say these aren't forgotten at all. They're actually just perfect. Uh, and they're placed really well, and they actually fit in a really interesting way. But 33 through 35 go through a few things. They are official documents that outline the land. So they're survey doc surveying documents the inheritance that's given, which is another legal document. And then the leaders are named, which is the executive and legislative branch of this country that hasn't even been, been settled into a piece of land yet. Um, and now in this chapter in 35, we get the judicial branch. So we get the formation for the first time in human history of a three-part kind of government where decisions get made by three different groups of people. Uh, it is the exactly the, the kind of government that our own country has modeled its government after. So this should feel pretty familiar. But imagine if you're in a country reading the Bible and you don't live in this kind of a government. Or if you're in the ancient world where when people get mad at each other, they just run out and kill each other, right? It's a brutal world that they're in right now. And God's setting up this world that's not quite as brutal. And that's kind of a, a light that gets shined in history that's going to shine pretty bright as we go through it. So... We get this idea of these distributed, there's going to be a new nation and they're going to take over hundreds of cities in this area, but they're going to speckle throughout Israel these kind of, these holy cities that will be spread out throughout the nation. These cities where the Levites live. Uh, so we get these holy cities being distributed in chapter 35 and I'll shut up and just read the word. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. And if you look all the way at the end of chapter 36, you'll see another reference to Jericho making two little bookends on these two chapters. This is all kind of one piece or one document. Saying, command the children of Israel that they give the Levites cities to dwell in from the inheritance of their possession. And you shall also give to the Levites common land around the cities. 
They shall have the cities to dwell in and their common land shall be for their cattle, for their herds and for all their animals. Um, so we're going to get at this. This is That's the general precept of everything we're about to do in chapter 35. You get the big general thing there. In verse 2, it says this is a command. So God, the Lord, is speaking to Moses. And in verse 2, it's a command for the children of Israel. It's not an option. It's not something they choose to do. They are mandated or commanded to do this by God himself. The Levites, remember, don't have any land. Back in Numbers 18, verse 20, God is their portion. And here, in addition to having God as their portion, God's also going to say to each of these tribes that certain cities are going to be given over to the Levites. Uh, for their cattle, verse 3, uh, remember in Numbers 18, the Levites get tithes. So as people bring in some of the tithes, some of them are heave offerings or wave offerings. They get offered to God like this is yours. And then God says the Levites can have that and that can be for their own. So some of those don't get sacrificed. They get put into herds. So they have a source for milk, they have meat for later in the year, um, and they can actually have their herds. So they don't get their own land, but they get a place where they can run their cattle. They don't get their own property or domain or inheritance when it comes to that, but they get cities they can live in. So God's providing for his Levites in that kind of way. They can buy homes back in Numbers 25:32, but they can only buy homes inside of these cities. So they don't get farmhouses or that kind of property. Uh, the land then is not owned, it's just pasture land that they get to use, the common land, verse 4. The common land of the cities, because it's held in common, uh, which you give to the Levites, shall extend from the wall of the city outward a thousand cubits, roughly a mile. And you shall measure outside the city on the east side 2,000 cubits, on the south side 2,000 cubits, and on the west side 2,000 cubits, and on the north side 2,000 cubits and the city shall be in the middle. This shall belong to them as a common land for the cities. Now, this is interesting because notice in verse 4, it says a thousand cubits, right? So there's a circle that goes out from the city. It's a thousand cubits. But in each of the compass directions, it goes out another thousand cubits, making the shape of a cross in every one of these cities. And if they did anything to fence out the pasture land, they'd have a giant cross fenced out around every one of these cities, which I think is just awesome that God puts stuff like that in there, but that it could just be a coincidence. So if we want to have that discussion later, we can, but I just see that in almost every chapter of the Old Testament, there's something like that in there. So verse four, you're going to give it to them. And I love how God asks his people, commands his people to be generous. You're just going to give them these things. Now for civic leaders and these tribal leaders, it is so easy to be territorial and say, mine, mine, mine. Um, and God actually has them before they even take the land, he mandates that they're going to give part of what they take back to these Levites and that they're going to have a place. But that's cool. We're with that kind of generation now. They're ready to go. The end, though, is established before the beginning. And I like that part about verse 4. Let's get a context picture here. They're sitting on the edge of a riverbank. And looking across the riverbank within eyeshot is the mighty city of Jericho with walls that are sizable, we've heard. Right? So these, this is a defensible city held by people that know how to keep Moabites out and Amicalites out and all these other tribes that you know, have been kind of mean to Israel. This is a, a nasty part of the world. Jericho is a city that's sitting there like a bastion of power right in the middle of it. So instead of being disheartened about a battle that's coming in front of them, I don't know if you've noticed this, but the entire end of Numbers is a bunch of things that the Lord's telling them about when they conquer the land. Not just Jericho, but everything past it. 
And the Lord doesn't even talk about battles. He doesn't say, take heart, be courageous. He doesn't do a brave heart speech and rattle their sabers in front of the battle lines. He basically says, okay, here's the legal things of when this gets taken, as though taking the land has nothing to do with the people. And I don't know about you, but that'd make me pretty hopeful if the God of the universe, who I'd seen, my, grand, my parents had seen these miracles back in Egypt, and God's just saying the battles aren't really a concern for you. In other words, the Lord's going to fight a lot of these battles. So you will give, in verse 4, is spoken in that kind of way. This will happen. God has spoken it already. So the people get great assurance. And that this assurance thing was sitting on me during election week, this assurance that God has his people, and he will take care of them. And I will remind you, just like the Bible does, that in the days of Noah, there was 40 days of rain and storm that covered the whole earth. But God's people, very small group at this time, pretty much Noah and his kin, they knew about it well in advance. They even built a ship for the whole event, right? And they were safe through the whole thing. Assurance for Moses, before 40 years in the wilderness, Moses kind of knew what was happening. God has kept them posted all the way along, and he's given them those sorts of things. So 40 days with Noah, 40 years with Moses. Malachi writes a book that says there's a Messiah that's coming, and it's 400 years before Jesus shows up. So you've got these assurances for God's people throughout history. And they keep coming up where God says, here's what's going to happen, and then it happens, right? And that's the same thing that we have as believers walking on the earth today. We have promises in the New Testament about what's going to happen next. And we can be assured that God has his people and he will take care of his people. He always has. Even if there's storms all around them, God's people tend to get cared for. And God knows how to do that. In verse 5, the city shall be in the middle. I love the fact that this idea that gets talked about this cross shape, that there's these people that live in the middle, is that God determines the lines and the extents of where the Levites can be and where they can live. And those limits to some people would be constraining, but the influence that these cities, these small little group of Levite priests are going to have on Israel is actually pretty significant. So what might feel restraining in that you're in this city their influence actually is the whole tribal area that they're around. And we're going to see that in the coming verses. And the influence they have isn't in how far they push or attack other people. It's the, the fact that their doors are open and other people can come in. And that's their influence. So God determines the lines and the extents of their domains. In verse 4, there was a common land around the city. But in verse 5, that common land, the city goes in the middle of that area. So now among the cities, verse 6, which you will give... The Levi, go, I'll start over. Now among the cities which you will give to the Levites, you shall appoint six cities of refuge to which a manslayer may flee. Manslayer means killer. It's the exact same word we see in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not manslayer. And that's the word they have here. So to which a murderer may flee. And to these you shall add 42 cities. So, uh, okay, so verse, verse 6, I just like the idea that there's six cities, and, and it's not the 42 cities, and then you're going to add six. It's that there's six cities that are far more important, these cities of refuge, and to those you're going to add 42. Do you see how God worded that right there? Verse 7, So all the cities you will give to the Levites shall be 48. These you shall give with their common land, and the cities which you shall, will give will be a possession of the children of Israel. From the larger tribes you shall give many, from the smaller you shall give few, and each shall give some of its cities to the Levites in proportion to the inheritance that each receives. 
I don't want to forget this point. This happens in Joshua 21. They actually take over the land and each tribe comes in and says, here's how many cities we're going to give to the Levites. And when you read Joshua 21, if you want to flip there and skim, you're welcome to. What's kind of interesting about that chapter is it seems like each tribe comes in and gives its portion, not knowing what the other tribes are giving. And it actually comes out to this number 48. It's not like Joshua says, you as a tribe will give this many and you'll give. It's not organized like that. They come in and give out of their hearts and it, and it totals 48. So maybe the last tribe just kind of waited until last and then they put in however many they had to to get it right. And that's very possible given that they would have had this record. Um, but I just think it's kind of interesting that people give out of their heart, not out of obligation. God doesn't set the number and he never does with tithe. He asks people to give what's in their heart and what's abundant and what they will just hand out with a good heart. Verse six, you shall appoint. The word appoint there is to designate. Um, this appointed place is a fulfillment of prophecy in some ways. Back, way back in Exodus 21, 13, However, if he did not lie in wait, God delivered him into his hand, and I will appoint for you a place where you may flee. So all the way back in Exodus, God was having this loss laid out for people that would get in trouble and a place they could run to when they were in trouble. But he didn't name the place. So when you get to here and it says in verse 6 that it's appointed, it uses the same language that we saw back in Exodus 21. So this must be the place that people can run to, these cities of refuge that people can go to. And it's a promise for innocent people to have an appointed place they can run to, like an appointment that they have with this, this place. Um, refuge is a great word. This is the first time we see the word refuge in the Bible is in this, this particular passage. The Hebrew word is miklot. It means to be taken in, a lot like in the English, to be adopted, to be given asylum, and to be sheltered, to be protected. So in the Psalms, you see this word used all over the place in all sorts of like uh, poetic imagery, right? And that God is my strong tower and my refuge. And then this word miklot shows up. So miklot gets used throughout the Psalms all over the place, 20, 30 different times. But I'm just going to read you a few uh, where the refuge, the idea of refuge is associated with the Lord God Almighty himself. It's a very clear connection in the Psalms. The Lord is my refuge for the oppressed and a refuge in times of trouble, Psalm 9.9. Be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defense to save me, Psalm 31.2. And in the shadow of your wings, I will take my refuge until the calamities have passed, Psalm 57.1. You don't need to run to another country. You need to run to the Lord God Almighty. And throughout the Psalms, you see that connection happening. When things look sketchy out there, you run to the Lord God. He's your refuge. He's where you go when you need comfort. Now it gets more specific. Now there's six places instead of just generalized refuge places back in Exodus. These are prime among the rest. And what you see in these places is kind of a regional judicial system that shows up. This is where people run if they think they're innocent and they want to get away and, and have someone hear out their case. The, Levitic, the Levitical cities are going to be places where teaching and preaching happens. These are like the college towns. These are also like the religious centers all in the same place. So these are kind of these places where the primary role of these cities is not economy. The primary role of these cities is government, judicial government, teaching and scholastic things, and the keeping of the Holy Word. So they would have complete sets of all the scrolls with the Old Testament on it. And that's how the, the ancient Jews would live. Deuteronomy 19.3 
shows another interesting thing about these refuge cities. In Deuteronomy 19, and put that in your margins if you're doing it, they're commanded as a people that the roads to these cities need to be kept up and kept clear before any other roads get built. So that anyone anywhere in this nation can get on the road and run to a city of refuge at full speed and nothing gets in their way. So the path is to be kept clear, even if it's just a road, and those roads get built first. So this is, these cities are really important because the, they give cause, and I think this is interesting, at the heart of the construction of the Jewish state of Israel is this place of mercy from which the entire infrastructure gets built off that. So road systems also feed commerce, all these good things happen, but they get built off of mercy and the desire to have a space where people can be treated justly. So if you want to build a prosperous country, that could be a good way to start, is okay, what does our justice system look like? And that's where prosperity starts to come from. So in verse 7, we see that there's a total of 48. We see that they're based on tribe size. We see the Levites here are meant to serve the people. It's not that the people have to serve the Levites. It goes the other way. And there's proportional giving in verse 8. So those all get set up. Uh, God asks us the same thing. He asks us to give proportionally. He doesn't give us set amounts. Instead of having this mob rule, you've got these cities where people can run and have their case heard. And it's really kind of neat stuff. We get more specifics next. If you want to see more on this, Deuteronomy 19, Joshua 20 are good chapters. Verse 9 for us. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, again, there's the word when, when this happens. Um, actually, I'll stop on that for a second. It's kind of cool. Um, I know Zach's going, keep moving, dickers. I love that they don't get bogged down in the battles. There's nothing here that God gets into about the battles. And that doesn't mean they won't have battles. We, we know from the next book and from the book of Joshua, they're going to have lots of battles. But God just doesn't care about that because he knows those are his battles, not theirs. But when Moses speaks to the children of Israel, their job is to keep their eyes on salvation, not on the snakes, right? Their job is to keep their eyes on the Lord and not on everything on the battles going around them. So yes, there's this huge city of Jericho. God already knows what's going to happen to Jericho. It's a non-issue. It's already done. It's been deemed and foreordained. But those people don't know that. So God's word often moves into tenses that we don't understand. Because God's seeing the whole thing happen, and when he ordains something, it's going to happen. But we don't always see that. It's tough then when our world goes into things that we don't understand, but God totally understands what's going on. And that tense thing comes, becomes real. So when God says, when this happens, you shall do this. And, and it would be easy for the Israelites to think, well, that's easy for you to say, God. You're not looking at Jericho right now. You're not looking at those giants that are over in that other country. And God is looking at them. He does understand them. They're just not giants to him. So he moves on with the important things like build cities with good herd pens and make roads between them. And this is the important stuff, people, that you need to understand. It's not the battles you need to figure out. It's how to build this kingdom of God that he's asking them to build. So I was just thinking about prophets with that too. I think that's how prophets operate. God gives them a glimpse of a godly view of what's already happened. Right? And in God's perspective, if he's outside of time, it's not that prophets are predicting the future. Godly prophets are just seeing something and reporting what they see, which really explains the first two verses of the book of Revelation, which uses all three tenses. 
right? So this is something that I saw in the past that had already happened, that God had told me was going to happen, and it is happening right now. And you look at those first few sentences of Revelation, and they can be really confusing, but that's kind of how prophecy works. God's just giving humans a glimpse of something that's already happened in his perspective. So similar to this, God's just saying, when you take these cities, even though it hasn't happened in time yet. So verse 11, then you shall appoint cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person accidentally may flee there. They shall be cities of refuge for you from the avenger, first use in the Bible of the word avenger, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation in judgment. And of the cities which you give, you shall have six cities of refuge. Okay, we've heard that. Let me go into each of these words. Manslayer in the Hebrew is ratzach, which that C-H I can't pronounce. It's only other uses in the Ten Commandments. You shall not kill. We already got into that. And the reason you shouldn't kill people is given to us in Genesis 9-6. Whoever sheds a man's blood by man's blood shall be shed, for in the image of God, God made man. So the reason we don't kill people, folks, if you're thinking about this, is that that person is made in the image of God. And when you kill that person, you're killing an image that God made, right? It's like, it's so horrible to God that when that happens, you've crossed a certain line that the, the consequence for that is death and that in a civic society that needs to happen. But what if somebody dies accidentally? Well, then the consequence shouldn't necessarily be death because it wasn't that you were destroying that image of God. It's that you were playing bottle rockets and shot one off in the wrong direction and something bad happened that you didn't play on. Or the arrow game where you shoot the arrow in the sky and then run. It really gets your adrenaline going. Verse 2, and I'm not recommending anyone does that. It's a bad idea. Verse 12, where did that come from? Verse 12, Grant, somebody in this room needed to hear, don't shoot arrows straight up in the sky and then run. Verse 12, the cities of refuge, who are they for? They're for you. And remember who's being addressed here is the children of Israel. The purpose of all this is for the people of God. This is for the good people and the innocent people. It's a sanctuary so that saner minds can prevail. And in the ancient world, remember, people died all the time. They didn't go to work in nice, safe environments with gloves and little hats on. They'd go out into the fields or they would go to the stone quarries or they would go to the lumber yards and they were using hand tools. So it's just a matter of time before you're out there, little Jewish Levite person working in the field. You got your chainsaw and you're <laughs> ripping it up and the blade breaks off and it kills somebody. And the person next to him is like, somebody's going to think that I did this to that person, right? You're swinging an axe and the head falls off and hits your neighbor. This is something that happens in the ancient world. They were using, you know, twine to tie these things on. So tools would break, things would happen, stones would not be held in the air and they would flatten people. And then that person has, by law, somebody in their family is gonna make that death right. And they're called the avenger. The word for avenger is ga'al. This is a great word. And it really is used throughout the whole Bible. It's an important theological concept to understand what an avenger is. And there's movies, I know, Grant. A ga'al, an avenger, is actually in somebody's family. There's supposed to be a familiar connection to an avenger. So if someone kills Grant, it's my job to make that right. And whoever kills Grant, it's my job to take them off this planet to make it right, right? Or vice versa. So a a, a redeemer is often translated kinsman redeemer. 
because they're supposed to be related. And there's actually an order to them in Leviticus 25, can be a brother, an uncle, a cousin. And if there's no familiar relatives, the next door neighbor is supposed to make that right. Okay? So the avenger in this particular passage is singular because it's usually assigned to one person. And in a whole tribe, you can usually find somebody that says, I'll take that on, right? So you take somebody who can get that job done and you go after it. So if, that, if you're at the stone quarry and you're working the, you know, the crane and it accidentally the lever pops off and the thing drops and it kills somebody, you get out of the crane and you run to the city of refuge because whoever finds out about that is going to end that pretty quick. You get to a place where there's a court and you get your day in court heard. Or else you got what happens, you know, in Appalachia. You got the Hatfields and the Lacoids, and they just kill each other until everybody's dead. And that was the ancient world because Avengers were not just Israeli kinds of concepts. They happened all over the place. Um, does that make sense? All right, I just like the history part of this. So you're going to have six of these cities that you can run to. Uh, and if you're working with, you know, imagine just being on the field with oxen. You know, and you're out there and you're, you're with your cousin or brother and you're trying to do a team of oxen with handmade ropes. And I don't know if I'd want to handle oxen with handmade ropes. I, I trust factory-made ropes and nylon a little bit more than I trust twine and Egyptian-made ropes. So this kind of stuff would just, you know, what if the oxen was chewing on the ropes prior to going out to plow the field and now the oxen's mad because you're hitting it with a whip? And it just things happen anyways. I'm picturing all these ways that people can die in the ancient world this week. It was really quite a weird. So there's the Avenger, Gaal, kinsman redeemer. There's two kinds of redeemers. There is an Avenger that seeks death, which is the equivalent of a death. But Avengers were also used for redemption in the case of financial loss that needs to be made right. So if somebody lost their land, it was the job of a kinsman redeemer to come and purchase that land back for the family so that the land stays in the family, which is the last thing we're going to talk about in chapter 36. So there's two kinds of redeemers. There's ones that purchase or use funds to make things right financially. I'll give you some examples. Numbers 5-8, if there's just a simple trespass, the kinsman redeemer will go and make that trespass right, and you can buy your way out of that. Leviticus 25 is the land redemption example, or the entire book of Ruth is built on the concept of a kinsman redeemer coming in to make something right when there's a widow that needs a home. So you take care of your family. Kinsman Redeemer is kind of like a godfather. They're making sure everybody in the family is taken care of. And sometimes they have to do the dirty work of avenging a death. So if somebody in your family is wrong, a Kinsman Redeemer, an avenger, makes it right, either through the purchase of somebody to make it right that way or to be the punisher of something that happened that was a death kind of thing. This avenger that we're talking about in this chapter, these avengers are out for blood. They're trying to deal with an accidental death, but they don't know it's accidental. They're just going to make it right either way. And they are going to go and do that. So verse 12 says, they may not die until he stands before the congregation or the people of that city in judgment. In other words, for the first time in history, that adventure is told to sit, take a breath, relax, and they're going to accept the judgment of a jury of their peers. So you don't just get to go out and be your own venger. You have to wait for the justice system to act and to think. And in that system, both sides are going to hear each other. There's a day in court that starts to happen. So major theological concept. Nobody really dies until after Judgment Day. So 
So all that avenging stuff has to wait until a judgment's been passed. And that has been passed with all truth brought out on the table. Either on judgment day you're forgiven and you get to live in that city of refuge, or you're killed. And that's a major concept that all Jewish people just understand because it's how their country works. So they don't really have jails in ancient Israel. They have these cities of refuge, and this is how they live. Spiritually speaking, there's multiple images, which I hope are pretty obvious at this point. If we as human beings are wronged or done something wrong or trespassed against someone or even thought evil of someone, according to Jesus, we are then, we have done something wrong. And if that's the case, we have someone coming for us that we owe something to. And that person coming from us depends on what family we're in. You follow me? So either you're in the family of this world and the one that's coming after you is against that, or you're in the family of Christ and the one coming after you is the enemy. Whichever family you pick, you're also picking your avenger or the person who's making a claim on you. So Mike, when you're feeling spiritual warfare, you've probably got someone attacking. And this is a spiritual idea that's born right here in the Old Testament. So Jesus is called a kinsman redeemer and he, is, he has come because we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Satan has laid claim on us because we are then unholy and we don't, we don't deserve the holy presence of God. Satan calls us unworthy, we're unwanted, and he would love to make that right. And he seeks about like a lion waiting to see who he can devour, right? So the root word for refuge uh, is, to, is, is to lack something in parts. So this is an interesting idea. If refuge is a shelter, you shelter somewhere because you lack something to be out on your own. Does that make sense? Like you shelter under a tree because it gets really cold on your little bald head to be out in the rain and you catch pneumonia. You shelter because you're lacking something. So when we lack something and Jesus comes in and gives us that shelter or fills us, then we are then made acceptable because of our shelter. And we need an eternal kinsman redeemer to save or to redeem our eternal souls. This is where we get the whole idea that Jesus paid a price. What price? He paid the price to redeem you and purchase you back. Even though you've done all these wrongs, he paid, a, he paid in death for the wrongs that we've done, that death that we should have gotten. So as a kinsman redeemer, he actually redeems us and pulls us out. This is a core Christian theory, theological precept in all denominations. This is the idea that's coming on here, and it's getting established in this chapter, which I think is really cool. Second way to frame kinsman redeemer, or I'll go to avenger, which is another way to translate this. There is another avenger out there, and that is the enemy, or Satan. If we are a sinner, we can run to the city of refuge and stay there <clears throat> and be protected from Satan because we're under the shelter of the holy city. And we're in that thing. But that doesn't mean that that avenger isn't waiting outside the city for us to stray or leave the city. And remember that as we read through the rest of the chapter. We need to have the debt canceled in order for the avenger to go away. And that avenger doesn't go away until judgment day happens. You get how this is all really theological? Okay. It also makes for great fantasy writing. Um, and I'll go back to that point. Who the avenger is in your life has everything to do with which family you're in and who's coming after you to redeem you, and who's coming after you to kill you. So it depends on if you're a Hatfield or McCoy, or a Jesus person or a not-Jesus person. It just depends, and there's this spiritual movement that goes on. Ephesians 3.14 gives a great light on this. 
For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. When you become a believer, you tell the Lord you want to follow him with your life, you're named in the family. This sounds very Italian, doesn't it? Right? You're in the family. And if you're in the family, your Redeemer becomes the prince or the, the, the son of the king, Jesus, becomes your kinsman Redeemer. He's the Redeemer for the whole family. One Redeemer, entire family. So if you're in the family of Christ, you have that as your Redeemer. And I think that's just a great idea. Okay, verse 14. We'll keep moving. You shall appoint three cities on this side of the Jordan, three cities you shall appoint in the land of Canaan, which will be cities of refuge. Interesting that half of these cities are outside of the Holy Land, right? And you'll see that in the next verse, why, is that, why that's the case. And by the way, this is very merciful to, to Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh that are settling out in this part of the world. So God's still covering his people, even though they kind of were a disappointment. God appoints these cities. He's foreordained them. He's put them there ahead of time before anything happens. He's already got the system put together for salvation. A lot like with us. The system for salvation was built well before we sinned and well before we arrived on the scene. God's done this and he's done it before. These six cities shall be for refuge for the children of Israel. I love this. For the stranger and for the sojourner among them that anyone who kills a person accidentally may flee there. Anyone can run to these cities. God opens that door. Anyone can run to Yahweh for refuge and salvation. No, no exceptions. There's no conditions on this, which is why I think it's interesting sometimes how the Bible gets under attack as a Western Civ thing. No, it's pretty much anybody can run to Yahweh all over the world. And it's an open door for anyone who wants to give their... And they go to right to the whole idea of killing, I think, because it's the worst possible thing they can think of, that you've killed someone. Uh, Hebrews 6.18 says that by immutable things, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled to refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. We want to have a place to run to because that's what we need. And it's a place we need to go. But we know the end, the purpose of all this uh, is that there is a real thing that's going on and there are real sins that we've committed and there are real things we are guilty of. Therefore, we need a saving God. Verse 16, but if he strikes him with an iron... Oh, so the next few verses, it's going to get into the detail of like how somebody kills somebody. So I'm just going to read through a bunch here. If he strikes him with an iron implement so that he dies, he is a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. If he strikes him with a stone in the hand by which one could die and he does, he is a murderer and the murderer shall surely be put to death. Or if he strikes him with a wooden hand weapon by which one could die and he does die, he is a murderer and the murderer shall surely be put to death. So you get three different types of weapons. Obviously, if you take a hunk of iron and hit someone on the head, there is no way to interpret that as a nice act. It's not a friendly thing to do. So the avenger, I'll come back and talk about these. The avenger of blood himself shall put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. If he pushes him out of hatred or lying in wait or hurls something at him so that he dies... Kids don't throw jarts at each other. Or an enmity, he strikes with him with his hand so that he dies. The one who struck him shall surely be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. God makes a distinction here and actually uses two different words. For killing, he uses the word muth, which we've seen before. And for murder, he uses the word rasash. So God makes a distinction. Both end in death. 
Both are a human killing another person. But with murder, murder is always killing, but killing is not always murder. And that God makes a distinction between the two of these. And I would say overwhelmingly, the tools in verses 16 through 18 are one thing. The avenger himself has to do the execution. You can't hire somebody to do that. You can't hire bounty hunters. You got to take care of it yourself. And trust me, if somebody hurt my family, I wouldn't have any problem with that at all. Like if I'm a Jewish person running around, I would want to be the one that would take care of that business. And there might even be some like restitution that happens there. I don't know. But the whole point of these verses is the determination of the heart. In verse 21, it says, in enmity. The idea is the intent of the action was to hurt or kill the image of God or someone else. So enmity, iba in the Hebrew, is a hatred that has to do with a hostile mind, which is why Jesus says, look, if you've even thought bad of somebody else, you are guilty of enmity. You're guilty of murder in your heart. So when you even think someone is a lower life form than you, you've committed a kind of murder. You've destroyed the image of God in your head. And Jesus holds you accountable for that. And again, Jesus' law is a lot more rigorous than the Old Testament. Old Testament, you actually have to take a stone and beat him on the head. But you could still think bad things about people. So the avenger of Bud then has to restrain his will no matter how much he wants to make this right. And he has to put a lid on all these kind of the vengeance acts in order for the justice system to work. That is if the person guilty of murder gets to a city of refuge. So the race is on when something happens. Right? That's why the roads need to be cleared in Deuteronomy, because they got to be able to run. So in Genesis 9-6, we see that defiance against God in the act of murdering, but there's something really evil about someone who would intentionally kill another person. It's incredibly evil. Verse 22, we get some more examples of how this would happen. But again, look at how intent becomes what the judges, this is what the judges got to figure out when these people arrive at the cities. Because they're sitting at the gates and these people come running up to the door and this is what they have to try to parse out or figure out. If, However, if the person pushes him suddenly without enmity, so they're just playing around, or throws anything at him without lying in wait, jarts, 23, or they use a stone which by which a man could die, throwing it at him without seeing him, like, oh, shoot. And I don't know if you've done this, but I have. And <laughs> This happens. And when you're kids, this happens a lot. We'll be in the woods throwing stuff and like we had potato guns and you shoot them at trees. But sometimes you miss the tree and then you hear the neighbor kid go, hey, and you almost hit me. <laughs> and nothing bad ever happened. But like this, when you're doing stuff, you're throwing stones off a cliff and somebody's walking on the path down below and you didn't see them. Verse 24. <laughs> then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood according to these judgments. So both parties then have to come and say what they think happened, right? And I would be like, I didn't see them. I'm really sorry. Um, so the congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood, and the congregation shall return him to the city of refuge where he had fled, and he shall remain there until the death of the high priest who is anointed with the holy oil. So the high priest anointed with the holy oil is representing God. Right, And at the end of the day, there's going to be a judgment that's made, and we're going to go with what, what that judgment is. Now, there's still a consequence for these accidental situations. The congregation makes a judgment call. Congregation here, too, we're talking about the ancient world. We're not talking about very large populations. So if you look at like small town Minnesota and you grow up in these small towns and everybody kind of knows everybody, 
if the congregation is part of this decision, these are probably people that you have known from the neighboring cities since you were a kid. And they know your character and they know who you are. So there's something where sometimes you get kids that are just, they've been mean since they've been bad to the bones since a long time ago. And then something like this happens and the congregation has some background as to who these people are. We're not talking about two million people metro areas yet. We're talking about fairly small communities where people know each other and they can speak to people's character, thus introducing those things. So when that judgment gets made, there's still an accountability. Note in verse 25, even if he's considered innocent, he stays in the city of refuge. Now, I think this is kind of merciful. If I'm a dad and one of my kids gets accidentally killed and I go as an avenger of blood and it's determined that it was an accident, I don't want to see that other person. You know what I'm saying? And sometimes it's healthy when an act of violence has happened. Like, I don't want to have that person walking around the market where I'm at. Like, that's just a recipe for something to happen. So by pulling that person out, we know you're innocent, but you're not going back to the city you were in. They just lost their life, right? And they now are going to serve the Levites and be working for the Levites until that high priest dies, which we get in the next few verses. So when he flees to one of those cities, this is from Josh 20, verse 4, Joshua 20, verse 4. When he flees to one of those cities and stands at the entrance of the gate and declares his case in the hearing of the elders of that city, they shall take him into the city as one of them and give him a place that he may dwell among them. This is your sentence. So it's kind of like jail, but it's not jail. And you'd say, how can you have a jail without bars? Because it's a normal city. There's, you can go outside. There's common land outside the city. Here's how you have a jail without bars. You let the avenger of blood sit outside that city as long as they want to. So if that avenger of blood feels like they, it was judged wrongly, they can sit outside that city for years, pacing back and forth, waiting for that moment. Because, I think this is just crazy. Wait a second. I went the wrong direction. There we go. But if the manslayer at any time goes outside the city limits of the city of refuge, verse 26, I didn't skip any verses, did I? Am I in the right place? Okay. Verse 27, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the limits of the city of refuge and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he's not guilty of blood because he should have remained and it's his fault. <laughs> it's your fault if you leave the city. You've got refuge, but you have to stay in the city. Once you leave the gates, the enemy can get you. Right? Again, a theological idea. Because he should have remained in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest, but after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. This is brilliant. Now you don't have to pay money to make a jail. It's your choice. Your consequence is waiting for you if you want to leave the refuge of the holy city. It's right outside the gate. You want your life to be destroyed? Go out there and lose it. And the avenger can sit there as long as they want. John 12, 25. I'm totally taking this out of context, but just listen to it in light of this. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Totally out of context, right? But it's the same kind of idea. Even though these people have been judged innocent, they have to decide, I'm willing to lose my life back in my hometown and take up this new life in a city of refuge. Spiritually speaking, it's really a consistent concept because we have an enemy that's waiting just outside the people of God. There's shelter in the people of God. 
But you leave that group of people and we have enemies waiting to consume and devour. Be sober, be vigilant, First Peter 5, 8, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Best image of this is in Star Wars Episode 1, when Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon Jinn are trying to go in and fight this Darth Maul, this demonic-looking dude, and he's got a double red lightsaber that can go both directions, and then this like force shield pops up, and they got to stop. And of course, Kaigan Jin, he's an ultimate Jedi. He just kind of takes a seat and chills. But Darth Maul just paces back and forth. Total rage, total anger, great scene. And it's this image of that's what it looks like. These cities of refuge, violence doesn't touch these places. But outside these places, you just got Darth Maul walking back and forth, waiting to get you. Right? And Kaigan Jin does die in the next scene. Won't give it away. Just. So if I'm an Avenger of Blood, let's think strategically now, and the guy who killed my little sister is in that city, and by law I can't touch him when he's in the city, what am I going to try to do? I want to lure him out. Hey, don't worry about it. I'm over it. I forgive you. It's all good. Come, let's hang. We'll go out and see a movie together. Let's do anything I can do to get that person to just, maybe I'll go hide in a bush. Nobody out here but us bushes. Don't worry about us. You can do all sorts of things. You can play all these games, but the Avengers then serve as the prison keepers. Multiple Avengers would probably talk to each other and even team up and say, if my guy comes out while I'm sleeping, wake me up. And if your guy comes out while you're sleeping, I'll wake you up. So you get teams of Avengers that voluntarily serve as the prison guards. And it's kind of brilliant. No burden on the society. And you know what? If the Avenger at some point just says, you know what? I forgive him they just go home and it's over they can they don't have they're choosing their own prison to be the prison guard they're making a choice and the people inside the city they're making their own choice too if they want to call it quits they can just walk out and say hi to their avenger and say let's fight but then another avenger will just show up right so it doesn't do any good to get into that i think this is a great trade if I'm actually innocent and I know that and I go to the city and I make it there in time and I give my case to the, the judge and they say, yeah, you can have refuge here. I'm like, deal. That's the best deal ever. I will live here. I will serve the Levites. I'll do whatever you need to do. I can sweep the streets. I'll do it all. And I'll just spend the rest of my days here. At least I keep my life. So there's mercy. And it's a great trade. And you'd say, well, that's such a, you're giving up all your freedoms. No, I actually am keeping my life. Right? It goes back to what we talked about last week with the turpentine and the cherry coke. Like, no, I, I, I actually choose to stay alive in the refuge of my king and my savior and my redeemer who's going to redeem me and pay for me. Now, spiritually speaking, I want to read this one line. Because he, this is verse 28, because he should have remained in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. So there's a season where they get to just go back and whatnot. But what happens if the high priest never dies? What if there's an eternal high priest that takes on that mantle at some point in the future? That means my refuge goes on forever. This is the good news that the Jewish people started sharing with the other Jewish people when Jesus rose from the dead. Good news. This high priest is eternal. He'll never die. You'll never lose your shelter. You'll never lose your refuge. Again, this is just, God's so awesome. Let me bring that point home. 
if God is our refuge, then think about the rules of the refuge city. If God's our refuge, then there's a singular adventure that's out there that's probably out for blood. Numbers, 23, Numbers 35 verse 12 in the chapter we just did. The roads are to be kept clear and it's easy to run to God. Deuteronomy 19.3. It's open to everybody who wants to use God as a refuge. It's not just a Jewish, non-Jewish thing, right? It's for everyone, Jews and Gentiles. Numbers 35.15. You live there until your priest dies. Numbers 35.25. The cities are the only way for salvation. There is no alternative in Israel. The only way for you to get salvation is to run to the city of refuge. And if God's our city of refuge, the only way for salvation is to run to God. Full speed, not half speed, because there's an avenger coming for you. Numbers 35, 27. And based on the judgment given, even guilty people could be called innocent in this system. Because think about it. If I'm guilty and I actually did kill the person, do you think I'm going to tell people that when I get to the city of refuge? No, you're just going to go in and say it was an accident. It's a huge accident. And you're going to trust that your lie is good enough to get you refuge in that city. So theoretically, a guilty person can still be saved, even if they're guilty in this system. Thank the Lord, because most of us are guilty. So when we run to God as our salvation, and he judges us, and judges us innocent, it actually means we have innocence in that holy city for all of eternity through this law, even if we're guilty. The point is you ran to the city and you asked for mercy. You could even say, I actually did kill the person, but please give me forgiveness. And a city could just say, yeah, we don't really want to see a death today. So we'll get, we'll let you have refuge here. And we know your character. You've been along for a long time. You had a, you had a fight over the election and somebody got killed. And <laughs> we get it. We, we understand how that happens, but you can have refuge, but you got to live here for the rest of your life. You're willing to lose your life and live here in the city? Sure. Then you can have your life for all of eternity. How beautiful. Verse 29, these things shall be a statute of judgment to you throughout your generations in all of your dwellings. Whoever kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the testimony of witnesses. But one witness is not enough testimony against a person for the death penalty. So you don't get to just come in and tell people they get to die. Two or more is going to be the standard. Deuteronomy 17, mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses, shall he that is worthy of death be put to death, but at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death. The hands of the witnesses shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterwards the hands of all the people, so thou shalt put evil away among you. So the Jewish people are asked to put evil away among them, but the witnesses have to step forward, they have to be named, and they have to be willing to do the killing themselves. This is where when Jesus in John 6 said, let the first among you be the first one to cast stone, they all kind of walked away, because they would then have to step forward and say that they saw her having sex. I don't know if you caught that or not, but they'd have to admit that they were witnesses in order to throw the first stone. So they don't. They all walk away because they realize they'd be admitting their own guilt if they stepped forward and called themselves a witness of whatever she was doing in these private rooms. So gossip doesn't get to reign in Israel. Gossips will come in mobs with no actual individual accusers. It's just a group of people that all say the same thing about somebody. But individuals have to speak truth and then they have to stand by it and they have to willing to put their name to it. Verse 31, moreover, you shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death. Rich people don't get to buy their way out of this, but he shall surely be put to death and you shall make, take no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the priest. 
So you shall not pollute the land where you are, for blood defiles the land, and no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. Therefore do not defile the land in which you inhabit, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell among the children of Israel. You can't exchange money for this kind of situation. That's pretty clear. You can't buy your way out of judgment. Uh, they don't get to go back. Murderers that are committed guilty of murder, you don't get to get out of the death penalty. So for those of you that struggle with the death penalty, and that's an area of, of debate that you have, at least from the biblical perspective, when someone's considered guilty, they're supposed to be killed right there and then. And that is supposed to be, that's at least what it argues. The rationale for it is that they defile the land. You send those people back out into the community and they bring fear with them because they're capable of killing. And everybody around them knows it. Second reason is that they are maybe likely to kill again. And the third reason, uh, and I think that's really clear in verse 34, is because God said so. Because this is God's land and you don't, he doesn't want murderers walking around in that land. So the murderers defile the land in verse 34. There's an actual kind of spiritual and physical pollution that happens when that happens. Uh, we have communities in the United States of America where murderers are still out walking the streets. And those communities are hurt by that kind of spiritual influence in those cities. So it's not an argument about the cost of jailing these people. That's not here. It's not an argument about the redemption of murderers because God's going to judge them and that's an eternal judgment that happens later. It's actually an argument about whether or not God dwells among the people in verse 34. And I think that's an interesting perspective to bring to the capital punishment debate. Um, I, the Lord, dwell among the children of Israel. It's a holy place. The rational then is basically because I said so. And that's hard to hear. I remember as a kid when my parents would say, because I said so, it usually meant that they were at their wits end with me, right? This isn't something that's debatable, Sean. It's because I said so. And I was like, all right. So death penalty is clearly laid out in the Bible. Uh, it is a means for justice. I think one of the big things is that justice happens clearly and it happens with witnesses that have stepped forward, which is extremely difficult to do and put their own name and reputation at risk to claim that that murder actually happened. Um, so chapter 26 keeps going with the word now. It's, there shouldn't really be a chapter break there. It's kind of the finishing out of it. At the end of 35, I think this is kind of interesting too. 36 is a really short chapter, and it starts with the word now as though it's kind of moving forward from the last one. I think 35 and 36 should have been one chapter because you have 10 chapters at the beginning of this book or clear narrative stories, and then you have 15 in the middle. And then if you pair these two chapters, you actually have 10 at the end too, and it creates a perfect symmetry in the book, which I think is part of the fingerprint of what God's doing. Because I don't think Moses planned that out, right? These are addendums, but it all adds up. Now the chief fathers of the families of the children of Gilead, the sons of Machir, the sons of Manasseh, and the families of the sons of Joseph came near, and they spoke before Moses and before the leaders, the chief fathers of the children of Israel. Verse 1, they do everything right. And if you've been here for a few months through the book of Numbers, the entire middle part of the book of Numbers is people dealing with their problems in the wrong way. And then they get eaten by the earth, snakes get them, plagues get them, leprosy gets them. All sorts of problems. But these people do it the right way. Verse 1. New generation, they're nailing it. So we get one last reminder of the faith and the daughters of Zelophad. It's really cool how these young girls come into the narrative of the book of Numbers. But they kind of represent these people that are just on faith demanding their inheritance. 
like we should be. And they said, the Lord commanded my Lord Moses to give the land as an inheritance by lot to the children of Israel. And my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of our brother Zelophehad to his daughters. This is cool because it's not the daughters coming back right now. Like faith is contagious. And people that love the Lord and just anticipate the Lord and trust the Lord, now we got other people doing, they're advocating for the daughters too. So this is now more than just the daughters claiming this inheritance. Now they got the whole family on board. So we have these unclaimed brides, these five young ladies that are brides that have yet to be claimed that want their inheritance. And the question is, who do I have to marry to keep my inheritance with the Lord? And the answer is really clear. Verse 3, now if they're married to any of the sons of the other tribes of the children of Israel, then their inheritance is going to be taken from the inheritance of our fathers and it'll be added to the inheritance of the tribe in which they marry. So then it'll be taken from the lot of our inheritance. And when the jubilee of the children of Israel comes, then their inheritance will be added to the inheritance of the tribe in which they marry. So their inheritance will be taken away from the inheritance of the tribe of their fathers. Really clear, right? <laughs> so this is an honest problem. They're bringing up a little bit of confusion. Well, wait a second. If the, tri if the land is being given to the tribes, it's not about individuals, and daughters can inherit the blessings of God too in the form of the land, then when the daughters marry into another family, does that land go with them to the family or does the land stay here and they lose their inheritance? Well, that's a tricky problem. So I love the fact that this question demands coherence as an answer. Right to our human nature when we ask a question, it, the only reason you ask a question is because there's something in our soul that wants things to make sense. And we don't ask questions if we don't do that. So when the world doesn't make sense, we go to God and say, why does this happen? And why don't we have more coherence and sense? And they bring it to them. And this is the picture of mature believers, a faith-based nation. They're not gossiping. They're not complaining. They're not being trivial. They're not rebelling against the leadership. This is just sanity prevailing in a country. And it's beautiful when it happens this way. And they get an answer. Moses commanded the children of Israel according to the word of the Lord. So he's talked to the Lord saying, when that tribe of the sons of Joseph speaks is right. Actually, what you're coming, this concern you're bringing is a good concern. Thanks for bringing it up. This is what the Lord commands concerning the daughters of Zelophehad saying, let them marry who they think is best, but they may marry only within the family of their father's tribe. Okay, so let me just say this. If these tribes are two, 300,000 people, this is like saying marry anyone in Minneapolis. So we're not talking about inbreeding, right? This isn't like you have to marry your uncle or something weird like that. You can pick anyone you want, just pick anyone from that tribe so the land stays with the tribe. So just keep it in the family is kind of the answer. That makes total sense, right? But I love what the daughters of Elphiad, we get one last image of just their zeal so the inheritance of the children of Israel shall not change hands from tribe to tribe. For every one of the children of Israel shall keep the inheritance of the tribes of their fathers. And every daughter who possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the children of Israel shall be the wife of one of the family of her father's tribe, so that the children of Israel each may possess the inheritance of his fathers. Thus, verse 9, no inheritance shall change hands from one tribe to another. But every tribe of the children of Israel shall keep his own inheritance. So two birds with one stone, this is the judgment. So the bride stays within her tribe. Tribes right now are anywhere from 50 to 200,000 people. So not, you know, Mankato to Minneapolis. You got to stay within that world. Just as the Lord commanded Moses, so the daughters of, so did the daughters of Zelophehad. 
And again, we get their, they get to be named twice in the word of God. So these daughters are a big deal. Mala, Terza, Hogla, Milka, and Noah. So, and, and remember, I won't get into it. Their grandfather's name is Heifer. So, all right, I did get into it. <laughs> the daughters of Zelophead were married to the sons of their father's brothers. What? Wait a second. They married their cousins? So this is inbreeding, darn it. What's going on here? <clears throat> they were married into the families of the children of Manasseh to the son of Joseph, and their inheritance remained in the tribe of their father's family. One way to read this is they married their cousins, and that's disgusting. Another way to read this, and I think it's a, a valid way to read it, is first of all, marrying cousins wasn't the worst thing in the world in the ancient world, right? Second, I think they're keeping it as close to the family as they can because remember the rule was you marry whoever you think is best. And their decision was, not only am I going to marry someone from the tribe, I'm going to actually keep it in the family. So they're doing more than what the law told them to do. They're going three steps beyond what they had to do and they're going to do even more. And it's like if God says, give me one day a week to be a Sabbath and you're like, God, I'm going to give you three. Right? It's just they're going way overboard in what they have to do. But they're keeping that in the family. So they do that. They go way beyond what they have to. Um, I, would, I would strongly say this is not a mandate for inbreeding. The mandate here was marry who you think is best. And in our culture today, marrying your cousin is not best. It's kind of not a good thing, unless you're in Arkansas. <laughs> All my Arkansas friends, I'm so sorry. We'll talk about it later. <laughs> like, so usually, God gives a but if you don't whenever he gives a command. Have you noticed that in the book of Numbers? Here's what I want you to do, but if you don't do it, then here's what will happen. There's no but in this final thing in the book of Numbers. Everywhere else we've seen a but, but here we don't see a but. And I think that's outstanding. In other words... God knows way ahead of time, they're going to just obey. You don't need a but if you don't do it, then this will happen unless God knows prophetically in the future, they're going to screw this up. So I better tell them what's going to happen when they screw it up. There's no but here. The daughters of Zelophad, God tells them what to do and they just do it. There's no, the problem is solved and it's solved the right way with no earth swallowing, no snakes, no fireballs from heaven, no leprosy, no sin. It just gets handled. They bring it to the the tribal leaders, they give a judgment and they say, I'll do your judgment and I'll do it even more so. Great way to end. These are the commandments and the judgments which the Lord commanded the children of Israel by the hand of Moses in the plains of Moab, by the Jordan, and then the last three words, across from Jericho. It's like an end of the movie with a sequel that needs to come right after it. We've come all the way from Sinai, the wilderness, edge of promise, the law of the land. Now, I know I've held you for an hour, I'm going to hold you for 10 more minutes because we're at the end of a book and this is really cool. Paul, get your notes ready. I've reviewed numbers a little bit before, but let's do a sweeping look at the book of numbers. And I hope you see uh, that God put his fingerprints all over this. Moses is just going to his tent at night, writing down what happens, right? And I don't think as humans, we plot out this kind of structure to what we write and what we do. Maybe Moses did. Maybe he was that smart. I don't know. But I think it takes more faith to think that Moses planned what I'm about to share with you than it does to think that God is just showing us that he's really the author of this. Does that make sense? So let me 
quick flash through the first nine chapters. Chapter one, God counts people in the first sentence. There's count, in the first census, not the first sentence. So in the first census, there's a counting that happens. In chapter two, God organizes his people and he names the leaders. Remember this? Nodding, nodding heads from people that were here at the beginning of Numbers. Numbers three and four, God gives his servants this devotional work to do, his Levites, and it's really simple menial work that he asks them to do. Then in, in chapter five, God commands them to clean up the defilement and sickness, go out into the homes, get rid of the mold, get the sickness out of your camp. Chapter six, he accepts their vows and then he blesses the priests. So there's this conversation about vows that happens in chapter six. Chapter seven, God records all the leaders and writes their names down again, and he renames the leadership of all the tribes. Chapter eight, God claims the Levites as his own and says, here's a holy people. And then he has those people serving and creating sanctuaries within the, the temple. He creates a temple sanctuary, almost like a sanctuary city, but not quite. That's at the end of the book. And then in chapter nine, he reminds people what it looks like to worship and follow God and to do it the right way. I know I'm getting almost done, Gary. So then we have rebellious people in the first nine chapters turning into faithful people and struggling with the with the flesh, but they learn to trust in God. This is what gets ready to, gets them ready to move from Sinai. They go from immature to mature, but that process happens in the next 15 chapters. In the next 15 chapters, we see this back and forth that happens. There's a good story, and then they screw up, and a good story, and they screw up. And as we go through these the screwing up gets uh, smaller and smaller and the doing it right gets to be bigger and bigger groups of people. So in the numbers 10, the whole nation breaks camp and they're respectfully moving forward and doing it right way. But they are all as a nation in chapters 11 through 14, complaining, dissenting, they're fearful and they show aggression towards, they attack when they weren't supposed to attack. Is this ringing a bell for everybody? So this is the whole nation doing these things. Then in 15, God teaches them and he says, I want you to meet people. I want you to welcome people. I want you to give thanks for what you have. I want you to stop sinning. And Heather, I just want tassels, <laughs> right? So God just says, people, it's just, you don't have to push. Just do it the way I'm asking you to do it. And then in chapter 16, Korah rebels, but it's not the whole nation. It's just the, the tribe and the family around Korah that they rebel, that doesn't go well for the Korathites. God then brings them back and there's this big moment in the middle of the book where there's the rods being put out. God chooses Aaron through a rod that blossoms, fruits, and, and uh, bears fruit all at the same time. So three stages of the plant life all at once. Numbers 18, he makes a covenant to salt with the whole nation. I'm gonna, a new covenant, a new thing happens in the middle of the book of Numbers. The middle kind of statement that happens is this nation is going to have a covenant of salt, right? Then in 19, and there's going to be a perfect red heifer that'll be the sacrifice for all of you, the middle of the book. And that sacrifice is going to purify and make all this stuff right. And then in Numbers 20, Moses strikes the rock, but that's not a whole family of people screwing up. That's just one person screwing up. So the screwing up is getting lesser and lesser while the corrections are getting bigger and bigger. So the reason Moses strikes the rock, God says, you did not believe me. Verse 12, then Aaron dies. So we got Aaron dying, Moses striking the rock. Numbers 21 through 24, the rest of the world is gathering to attack Israel and God handles it all without Israel even knowing it. With Balaam, the donkey, 
stubborn donkeys and that sort of thing. It just ends up being a blessing to Israel and Israel hasn't done anything. But then in Numbers 25, Israel screws up. There's a small group of people that get corrupted by lust. The Midianite women come down and, and woo all the, the people down there and that problem happens. And then you get the defiance of Zimri, a single person defying the Lord God. Only with the Zimri, somebody steps in and says, uh-uh, we're done with this. And Phineas takes out his javelin and drives it right to, through Zimri, Zimri and the Midianite woman. In chapter 25, this zeal for God shows up and corrects the problem right when it happens. So you got national rebellion all the way down to one guy and instantly fixed. And God's like, okay, you're ready to move. And then you get into the third section of Numbers, right? And this is after 40 years. So the whole generation has kind of died off in the wilderness and they've hucked their bodies into graves and all that stuff has kind of happened. And then you got this new generation ready to move. And look at this, Numbers 26, God takes another census and counts his people, just like Numbers chapter one. Numbers 27, he organizes the civic leaders and he names the daughters of Zelophad, just like Numbers chapter two. Different characters, same thing. Numbers 28, there's a spiritual devotion. I want you to devote daily, weekly, monthly sacrifices. I love that chapter, that's such a good one. This is what I want from you. And in that same thing back in Numbers three and four, he asked for the devotion of his people. I just want it to be simple. Numbers 29, there's a sacrifice to clean up the spiritual sickness that's in the country that kind of mirrors Numbers chapter 5, where God commands them to clean things up and get the spiritual purity of the country. Numbers chapter 30, he says, here's how we're going to deal with vows. Remember we got to that chapter when it was like, what a weird chapter to throw in here. But it mirrors perfectly Numbers chapter 6, where God accepts their vows. And vows are happening on both ends. Then God blesses all the people. Numbers 31, there should be a blessing here. Well, yeah, there's a war with Midian. They purge the wicked, they keep the pure, and God blesses all the people as they, they have all this inheritance from the sword. He protects them and guards them and blesses them. Numbers chapter 32, they're settling for less. Gad wants Gad and Reuben want to take the land on the other side. They want to go to war and do all this stuff with no inheritance coming through. It's kind of a bad chapter. It's kind of a wasted chapter, so to speak. And there's nothing really that's mirrored up on the other side, on, on the, the, the beginning of the book. But then you get to Numbers 33, and there's a permanent record that gets kept and written for the king that looks a lot like Numbers chapter 7, where there's a record of the leaders' names being written down and a recording of it all. And in Numbers 34, there's the new names of the new leaders that matches what we saw up at the beginning of the book. Numbers 35 has a claim of the Levite cities of refuge that mirrors the claim of the Levites in Numbers chapter 8 in perfect order on both sides of the book. And of course, there's sanctuary that comes with that, a lot like what Numbers 8 had set up for the people. And then last but not least, in Numbers 9, they were reminded to worship and follow God. And in Numbers 36, we're reminded of the daughters of Zelophad. And you have the same kind of pattern happening. That kind of organization blows my mind when there's perfect symmetry in a book like this. And you don't really have to stretch too far. You just have to notice things like, why is there a chapter on vows in the middle of these other chapters? And then you go to the beginning of the book and go, oh, because there was something up at the beginning of the book about vows. So either Moses is just brilliant at a level of like a mystery writer kind of brilliant, and that's a viable possibility here, but he is so brilliant that Moses is trying to tell us how God has structured something, and this is a message that Moses has for us about what's important about life. Or God is just working through Moses and God likes order because we already know that from the book of Genesis and Exodus. 
And God wants to put his imprint on this book to show us what he's doing. And we get to glimpse that as a people. And we don't even have to be that smart to figure this stuff out. You just have to read it and want to know what it says. So anyways, I hope that was worth the extra 10 minutes. So here we are at the edge of the wilderness. They're looking at the city of Jericho. They're standing there and God's already organizing their nation before they even have it. Let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we thank you for the word. I thank you for a bunch of geeks that like to study the word with me. Uh, Lord, I just, you're so amazing. You're so perfect. Lord, I just can't believe sometimes what you do to show us, to reach out through the word of God, to show us that you are there, that you are listening, that you're watching, and that what you ask of us is so little, and what we offer is so worthless to an almighty God. Uh, But Lord, we still offer it. Lord, if there's anyone in this room that has any doubt about if their life belongs to you, Lord, I pray that they wrestle with that tonight. I pray that their heart longs for you and longs to be with you and the joy that you give. And Lord, just the uh, spectacular way that you've revealed yourself to us through history, through events, but right in your word. Uh, We need go no further than to see the hand of God in the word of the Bible and how perfect it is, and how every word and every jot and every tittle is in the right place. Uh, Lord, we thank you for that gift. Thank you that it gives us boldness and confidence that you are there, that you are present, that you are acting in our life. Thank you, Lord, that we can just talk to you, and that you would condescend yourself to us to listen to what we have to say. Lord, we give you our concerns. We offer up everything we have. Lord, we commit and love you not only with our lives but with everything you've given to us lord our lives are already yours and we put them in your hands lord thank you for the forgiveness of sins for the red heifer for these images lord of forgiveness that you provided for cities of refuge that we can run to and we can cling to you and we can uh, at top speed lord just run for your forgiveness and your salvation lord we know we are guilty we know we've fallen short Uh, As Paul wrote, that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We know we are not holy. We know that in our hearts, Lord, we often think of ourselves first and not of others. Lord, that we we raise ourselves above other people. Lord, we even know that we've thought less of other people to the point where we're guilty of that. So, Lord, we just confess those things to you. We offer them to you. And we pray, Lord, that you forgive us. Take us into your family. Redeem us and claim us and... uh, Lord, just we, we, we'll stay here forever uh, and we'll live in your refuge and in your shelter and under the shelter of your wings in your strong tower. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.